You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. The European Central Bank shutters a service due to a hostile intrusion. Norman quietly mines Monero. Metamorph passes through email security filters. Some Capital One insiders thought they saw trouble brewing. Instagram crowdsources epistemology. Deep fakes are well and good, but the will to believe probably gets along just fine with shallow fakes. And the U.S. Cyber Command posts North Korea's electric fish malware to virus total. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, August 16th, 2019. The European Central Bank closed down one of its websites yesterday after sustaining an unspecified cyber attack on the bank's integrated reporting system. It's called BIRD. Reuters reports that ECB says no market-sensitive data were compromised, but that email addresses, names, and titles of BIRD newsletter subscribers may have been taken. BIRD is used to give bankers information on the production of statistical and supervisory reports. The server for BIRD is hosted by a third party. The ECB says none of its own systems fell victim to the attack. The bank is in the process of notifying affected customers of the incident. The Norman crypto miner, tracked by Veronis, is said to be showing some unusual evasiveness. Its dynamic link library arrives with the agile obfuscator, Once Norman is in, the malware also injects an obfuscated miner into an appropriate application along its execution path. Should a user suspect that something's amiss and open Task Manager to see what's up, Norman stops mining. Once the user's suspicions are allayed and Task Manager is closed, Norman goes back to work, piling up the Monero. Security firm Avanan is also warning of a relatively evasive kind of attack, They call this one Metamorph, and it's turning up in a phishing campaign that mimics Microsoft voicemail notifications. Avanan says the link the phishing presents will take the unwary to a credential harvesting site. The evasion that has passed Metamorph through the link parsers in Microsoft Office 365 is the use of meta-refresh to redirect the victim from the locally hosted HTML attachment to a phishing page out in the wild, wild internet. Avanon offers two recommendations. First, be suspicious of any email that contains an HTML or .htm attachment. 
And second, admins might consider treating HTML attachments the way they treat executables. The Wall Street Journal reports that employees at Capital One expressed concern over what they saw as high turnover among the bank's cybersecurity unit. There are reports that a third of the cybersecurity staff left in 2018. The unit was responsible for threat hunting, firewall configuration, and similar security tasks. Even given the turnover, Capital One points out that total cybersecurity headcount actually increased over that period. Nonetheless, insiders complained of a poor organizational climate, lax security oversight, and slow deployment of security tools. Capital One has long enjoyed a reputation as a technologically savvy organization, sometimes described as a tech company with a bank, as opposed to a bank with a serious commitment to technology. Approximately five years ago, the bank began its migration to the cloud. Some observers think that migration and Capital One's tech-friendly culture paradoxically made the enterprise more difficult to secure. Many of the bank's personnel were empowered to make tech decisions, and that decentralization may have left the bank open to the sort of misconfiguration allegedly exploited by accused packer Paige Thompson, who went by the hacker name Erratic, to compromise its data. I want to take a quick moment to tell you about an exciting CyberWire event. It's our 6th annual Women in Cybersecurity Reception. It's taking place October 24th at the International Spy Museum's new facility at L'Enfant Plaza in Washington, D.C. The Women in Cybersecurity Reception highlights and celebrates the value and successes of women in the cybersecurity industry. The focus of the event is networking, and it brings together leaders from the private sector, academia, and government from across the region and women at various points in their careers. The reception also provides a forum for women seeking cybersecurity careers to connect with the technical and business professionals who are shaping the future of our industry. It's not a marketing event. It's just about creating connections. We're grateful to our sponsors. Here are some of them. During the event, guests will have opportunities to hear perspectives on diversity from our industry from this year's presenting sponsor, Know Before. Our 2019 platinum sponsors include Cooley. This year's gold sponsors include T. Rowe Price, CyberArk, FTI Consulting, Saul Ewing, Arnstein & Lair, Observit, and Synac. And if your company is interested in supporting this important event, we still have a few sponsorship opportunities available. And if you're interested in an invitation to the event, tell us a little bit about yourself and request one at our website, thecyberwire.com WCS. That's thecyberwire.com WCS. We look forward to hearing from you, and we hope to see you there. Instagram is introducing a feature that would permit users to flag information they believe to be false. Reuters has an account of the tool, which appears to be an interim gesture in the direction of controlling fake news. It's not entirely clear that this sort of crowdsourcing will readily get to ground truth, which of course may not necessarily be the same thing as community consensus. Perhaps this represents an attempt to move toward John Stuart Mill's marketplace of ideas, but then Instagram isn't really the sort of ideal or rational market that one might hope would converge on truth. In that light, it will also be interesting to see how the tool fares in countering the Russian and other disinformation operations it's presumably intended to fend off. The Russian approach, which has aimed at disruption, might not be affected to any noticeable degree at all. If you're simply aiming at widening fissures in a targeted civil society by amplifying the more extreme and ultra-voices, haven't Instagram and other social media famously served as echo chambers for the like-minded? In any case, we shall see. 
The other concern that's been surfacing recently has been the potential for deep fakes to influence public opinion. Axios argues this week that this particular threat has been much exaggerated. For one thing, they point to claims by ZeroFox that it can now reliably detect manipulated imagery. For another, Axios notes that those who wish to be deceived will deceive themselves come what may. Such ploys as Stalin's airbrushing of unpersons from official photographs did the job back in the 1930s, and they can do so again. With respect to influence operations, it's hard to escape the conclusion that, as Pogo Possum said a half-century ago, we have met the enemy, and he is us. U.S. Cyber Command has posted electric fish malware from North Korea's APT-38 threat group to Virus Total. FireEye has reported that APT-38 is heavily involved in state-directed financial crime. Its activities overlap those of the Lazarus Group. Many of you are no doubt aware that Cyber Command has a Twitter feed dedicated to telling followers when it's posted something to Virus Total. Just search for U.S. Cybercom Malware Alert on Twitter. They've got the blue check mark and everything. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He's the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute, and he's also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's always great to have you back. We wanted to touch today on some stuff that you've been tracking when it comes to the fragmentation of IP within operating systems. What are we talking about here? IP fragmentation is, well, as old as IP itself. The problem you have with 
packet-based networking is that not all networks support the same packet size. So as packets traverse the internet, they may hit a network segment that has a smaller maximum packet size, also called the maximum transmission unit or MTU. And routers then need to essentially split up packets into small fragments. This process has always been problematic, and particularly the way the standards, the RFCs, were written for IP, it specifically required receiving hosts to deal with some odd fragments. Like, for example, if you receive two fragments that overlap, and then it's not really clear, is the first or the second copy of the packet going to get used? One part of the network that particular had issues with this was intrusion detection systems. Intrusion detection systems have to understand how a particular recipient will deal with the traffic. And a lot of papers have been written about how different operating systems are actually dealing with some of these ambiguities that can show up when we're dealing with fragmentation and even though this problem is pretty old, like it's like I said, as old as IP, so about 30 or so years old, it still keeps coming up. Just last year, we had like a big denial of service vulnerability in Linux as well as in Windows dealing with fragments. Fragments Mac was the name there. In response, a couple of the operators like Linux and Windows, they stated that they're going to actually change how they're dealing with fragments. Hmm. So... I went back and looked at some of these operating systems to really sort of map out is what we sort of assume still true. And what did you discover? And I discovered, uh, for example, that one thing that surprised me a little bit, that uh, Windows will not accept overlapping fragments at all anymore. And this is going back to Windows XP Service Pack 3. That's of the oldest I could easily set up there. It was sort of known for the newer version of Windows, uh, but I was kind of surprised that even these old versions of Windows, they don't accept overlapping fragments anymore. That actually is important because now you have to make sure that you're telling your intrusion detection system that this is how Windows is reacting. Otherwise, your intrusion detection system may actually you know, consider packets as valid that your operating system will drop. So folks uh, may be running under outdated information. Correct. Uh, folks may be using outdated information. Same is true somewhat for Linux. Now, at this point, Linux is still accepting overlapping fragments. So that's still true. That still works. But Linux announced that they will actually also start dropping them in the near future. I believe uh, some of the more recent kernels that haven't sort of made it into the current distributions yet already drop overlapping fragments. So in terms of being proactive and getting ahead of these changes, what are your recommendations? Actually, I would go even further. I would tell my firewall, drop fragments. One thing in modern IP stacks is that they are actually pretty good in avoiding fragmentation. The only system in your network that you should still see fragments at all is your DNS server. So uh, give it a try and uh, see what happens if you uh, just drop all fragments uh, in your firewall and just put an exception for a DNS server if you're running one. And uh, is there any fallout that could happen there? Well, uh, there's always an odd chance that you have some interesting protocols that uh, you know would get blocked by this. Uh, as a preliminary thing, you could maybe just log all the fragments and you know, see if uh, anything shows up in your logs. 
I tried a couple networks. I talked to a couple people that install firewalls in large networks and they pretty much confirmed it's actually safe at this point to just broth fragments. All right. Well, Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is John Smith. He's a principal sales engineer at ExtraHop. Our conversation was sparked by the recent news that Mondelez, a company that owns the Oreo and Cadbury brands, is suing its insurance company for refusing to pay out damages caused by the NotPetya attack. The insurance company, Zurich, refuses to pay out the policy, stating that there's an exclusion for a hostile or warlike action by a government. It's interesting. I first got interested in cyber insurance back in 2014 when a company called Schnucks was actually sued by their umbrella policy. And I kind of saw early on that there was going to be some friction with the insurance company when they started offering you know, cyber insurance. They wanted to kind of move that out of the umbrella policy and offer that as a separate rider. Obviously, the Cadbury lawsuit that stemmed from that is part of where I saw maybe there being some friction where they weren't quite fully underwriting this in the same way. They were underwriting it more as a hazard insurance, right? Like flood insurance or hurricane insurance. I live in Florida, so both of those are relevant versus mm. something that is inevitable, right? I mean, I, I have life insurance and, it, you know, it is inevitable that I won't be on this earth forever and sooner or later they're going to have to pay. But part of that underwriting was I had to get on a scale, a nurse came and I had to take a physical. We don't mm. really do that with cyber insurance. So, there's sort of, I think what I saw was an issue where maybe the industry didn't have a full understanding of the risks that they were undertaking. Really isn't something that is a hazard. It is more something that is an inevitability. And, and maybe there was going to be some changes. And obviously, the pending friction with the myriad of both Merck and the Cadbury lawsuit, both of those uh, have a lot of friction and will be settled in the courts. And so I, I kind of saw that there were some opportunities there to maybe reassess, you know, how you talk to customers, basically kind of have an understanding of where underwriting is, is maybe not fully understanding what they're getting themselves into. So where do you suppose we find ourselves today? If, if I'm uh, an organization that wants to go out and buy an insurance policy as part of the uh, spectrum of tools I want to use to protect myself, what am I going to encounter? You need to have an understanding of at least what are the outcomes you need in order for them to pay out, right? If you look at the where they're basically saying the recent breach was an act of war, and an act of war is becoming a common tool that insurance companies are using to basically to limit their risk and liability for a breach. You have to assume that there will be collateral damage in any state-sponsored cyber warfare campaign, right? If you look at the U.S. military, they sort of cordon off or they organize their theaters by comms. There's Northcom, Africom, Southcom. Cybercom is a global 
command, if that makes sense, right? So mm. while we, if you look at the U.S. and the Ukraine, we are, I Googled it, we are 5,687 miles away from the Ukraine. And while you might be 5,000 plus miles away from a conflict, if it's a cyber conflict, in most cases, you are digitally fractions of a second away from that conflict. If you have a public IP address, you're basically in theater. So you have to understand exactly what risks you're going to take in terms of what get out of jail free cards are there for the insurance company. I don't know if I'm using the right term, but you have to understand yeah. like what what are the things that could nullify your policy, right? And you need to understand that we live in this world where if it's a digital conflict, if you have a public IP address, you are in theater and you definitely run the risk of collateral damage in a way that physical confrontations don't. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting uh, thing to think about that it, I, I'll, I'll admit I, I hadn't thought about it that way. I mean, it's uh, in my mind, I'm imagining that the unlikely happened and Canada found themselves at war with Mexico. And, you know, Mexico was flying a, a plane over the U.S. heading towards Canada and accidentally dropped a bomb on someone in the U.S. Well, I, I suppose the insurance company could say you're not covered by that because that was an act of war, even though the U.S. wasn't an active member of that war. Absolutely. And, and, and in the world of, of TCPIP, right, in, in the digital cyberspace, everyone is in theater. That's why, again, that's why the U.S. sort of isolates that as a single command because it is a global conflict. Like I said, in general, you are faster than you can blink in terms of how fast it takes for communications to get to you. So you're always in the blast zone when you're on the public Internet. And so you have to have that understanding when you negotiate your policy with your insurance company. It also strikes me that uh, it seems as though some organizations, they kind of try to have their cake and eat it, too. And what I mean is this, that they will say, perhaps just from a PR point of view, they'll say, well, we got attacked and the data was breached and uh, we believe this was a nation state. And so goodness gracious, there's there's nothing we could have done about that because it was a nation state. But I suppose that opens them up with their insurance company for the insurance company to say, well, okay, if that was a nation state, then, you know, act of war, we're not covering you. I agree. In fact, we're probably going to have to wait for the courts to settle this and determine at least how that's liable. Either way, right, one of two things I think will happen, and I'm not a legal expert or an insurance expert, but what I will say is that if the insured prevail, then you're going to see tougher policies and you're going to see something a little more consistent with the underwriting of health care. You know, if, if you know, for me, take for instance, I was a little heavy and my blood pressure was a little high and I paid a little bit more. Now I made some lifestyle changes and now I'm paying less. And I think you're going to see the act and the, the um, practice of underwriting cyber policies is going to evolve drastically to one that accommodates both incentivizes the insured, but in, at the same time also gives some, some assurances for the company that's on the hook, basically that they're doing all they can to prevent the breach, right? If if I'm a race car driver or I like skydiving or, or if I build my house on the beach in the Caribbean, my homeowner's insurance is going to be much more expensive and obviously my health and life insurance runs the risk of being more expensive. So I think what's going to happen is those two, the insured and the insurers, how they work with one another is going to evolve over time. That's John Smith from ExtraHop. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. 
It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI... The best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.